What are you waiting for? Is there anything that you find yourself waiting for in your current season of life? Maybe you're a student and you find yourself waiting for graduation. Maybe you're single. You find yourself waiting for a spouse. Maybe you're engaged or your daughter is engaged and you find yourself waiting for a wedding day. Maybe you're married and you find yourself waiting for children or for grandchildren. Maybe you're waiting for a job or a promotion or for retirement. Maybe you're waiting for the, the presidential election season to hit full stride. Woo! <laughs> or for net, uh, yet another one of these to simply be behind us. Or perhaps for a worthy, God-fearing leader to rise up and to make a difference. Maybe you're waiting for your final round of chemotherapy to be behind you. Maybe you're waiting for a new kidney or a new heart to become available for you. Maybe you're just waiting for fall to arrive and for this dreadful heat to be over. Yeah, what are you waiting for? Do you have a list in mind? We all have a list. And if we were to compare and to contrast our various lists, many would likely be quite similar to one another, though no two lists would be identical, as our circumstances, though similar, are, are not identical. But regardless of the, the uniqueness of your particular list, there is one thing that needs to be on each and every one. I wonder if it's on yours. I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. You can find it on page 231 in the second half of the Pew Bible. James, chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let us pray. Our compassionate and merciful Lord, help us now to hear your command for patience. Teach and impart to us the wisdom and the steadfastness of Job in every trial that we face. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So what are we all to be waiting for? Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Well, interpretation 101, when you see a therefore, always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? How does this verse relate to what has come before? Is the, is the therefore of verse 7 drawing a conclusion from the immediately preceding verse or the immediately preceding passage or the larger section as a whole? Well, in this case, the therefore of verse 7 appears to be both referring to the, the preceding paragraph and to the larger section. The larger section begins back in the beginning of chapter 4. And the call in verse 10 of chapter 4 to humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves 
before the Lord. That call for humility in the subsequent verses then gets fleshed out in a variety of ways. Recall the preceding passage at the beginning of chapter 5 that contains a, a strong word of warning for the wicked wealthy regarding what awaits them in judgment if they do not repent of their self-serving ways. And then embedded in that previous paragraph, embedded in that word of warning for the wicked wealthy, was also an implicit word of comfort for the crushed Christian. Recall that many, if not most, of the Christians to whom James is writing were poor, and they were both being oppressed and persecuted by the wealthy of their day. Our passage now in verse 7 to verse 11 is really a, it's a continuation of that word of comfort that was found in verse 4. The comfort found in knowing that, quote, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The commander of heaven's armies sees your struggle. The commander of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts, he cares and he will act. Therefore, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Until the, quote, day of slaughter, as he put it in verse 5, when those who have metaphorically fattened themselves in luxury and in self-indulgence at the expense of others will meet their butcher. Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead, is coming. I wonder, when I asked you, what are you waiting for? Was the coming of the Lord near the top of your list? Was it on your list at all? If not, if the return of Jesus didn't even come to your mind when I asked you, what are you waiting for? Are you really waiting for it? Are we truly waiting for something if it's not regularly on our minds? What does it even mean to wait? The dictionary on my computer says that to wait is to remain in readiness for a purpose. To remain in readiness for a purpose. So that to command somebody to, to wait is to command them to, to put themselves in a state of readiness and remain there. Be ready. Ready yourself. Consider the, the illustration that James provides in, in the rest of verse 7. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rain. Why does a farmer have to wait? Why is that so descriptive of what a farmer does? Well, having tilled the soil and, and sown the seed, there's nothing else he can do. For God alone can cause the earth to bring forth fruit. One of the major downsides to the Industrial Revolution is that many of us are so distanced and disconnected from the source of our food that we've lost sight of the, the humbling truth of our utter dependence upon God for our daily bread. See, all life comes forth from the dirt. Humanity was brought forth from the dirt in Genesis 1.1, and everything we eat comes forth from the dirt. If not directly, then indirectly, as everything eaten by the animals that we eat comes from the dirt. There simply is no other way. And yet, we as humans can't make the dirt bear fruit. Yes, the farmer can, the farmer must till the soil and sow the seed, but then it's a matter of waiting upon the Lord to bring forth life. 
remaining in readiness for what the Lord will choose to do and when the Lord will choose to do it. That's the life of the farmer. It's a humbling state of affairs, is it not? You see, this is designed by God to teach us that God is God and we are not. And that's the first main point of our passage. Waiting on the Lord requires the humility to accept that God is God and that we are not. But in order for this, this humility, this humble posture to, to bear the fruit of patience, our waiting, it must be more than a, a, a reluctant resignation to the fact that we are not in control. That's not what we're talking about. The patient waiting to, to which we're called is more hopeful than that. It's not mere reluctant resignation. It's, it's confident expectation. The confident expectation of coming judgment for the wicked oppressors so that the oppressed can rest in the knowledge that God will one day bring forth perfect justice. That God will one day bring forth the vindication of those who suffer unjustly. That's His word of comfort to suffering Christians. And with that, there's the confident expectation that all suffering is temporary. So that the sufferer can rest in the knowledge that this too shall pass. For all suffering will eventually give way to the precious fruit of eternal glory in the presence of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, patiently wait for the coming of the Lord. Patiently wait for your vindication and your glorification. James repeats, verse 8, You also, like the farmer, be patient. Then he says, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. Strengthen your hearts. The NIV translation gives a more colloquial rendering of it with stand firm. Stand firm. And notice again that, that the call to, to patiently wait, it's not a call to do nothing. It's a call to action, not to inaction. It's a call to put yourself in a state of readiness and actively remain there. Stand firm. Okay, so how so? Well, to, to establish your heart is to deliberately work to, to cultivate this humble posture cultivate this humility that he's calling us to, acknowledging, and not just acknowledging, but accepting your dependence upon God like the farmer, resting in God's timing. For the coming of the Lord is at hand, he says. That is, the coming of the Lord, it has drawn near. Well, this was written almost 2,000 years ago. Was James wrong when he said the coming of the Lord is at hand? No. When the writers of the New Testament, when the apostles and the prophets speak about the nearness of the coming of the Lord, it's nearness. The emphasis is not on how many literal days remain until that day comes, but rather the emphasis is on the fact that we have entered into the final age of this world. What James referred to in verse 3 of chapter 5 as the last days. They are upon us. That is, there's nothing more for us to wait upon apart from Christ's return in His time. There are no prophesied events that must first take place. Now that might not excite you as much as thinking that there are events unfolding on the world stage that indicate to the savvy reader that the end of the world will happen any day now. Perhaps it's more exciting that it sells more books, more conferences. 
But the truth is that we might still be in the first part of the last days. We might not even be halfway through them. Or, on the other hand, it could be today. We don't know. And so the charge that is given to us, just as to the original readers of James, is to live like it's any day now. Now certainly, admittedly, that's a little bit harder for us than it was for James and his readers, given that almost 2,000 years have already elapsed. For us, it's easy to begin to think uh, like the scoffers that the Apostle Peter addresses in 2 Peter 3. You probably know that passage well. 2 Peter 3, uh, the scoffers say this, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Meaning the end of the world is not coming. But, writes Peter, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, that is, without warning. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That day is coming. So whether that day comes today or whether it doesn't come for another 10,000 years, eternity is only ever a breath away for any one of us. Remember what James said in chapter 4. He wrote, what is your life? For you are a vapor, a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The message to us is never mind how close we are to the end of the world, as though we could know that. We never know how close any of us are to the end of our own lives. We never know how close anyone that we meet is to the end of theirs. So get busy waiting. Get busy waiting for the return of Christ. That is, never losing sight of what is coming. Put yourself in a state of readiness and remain there. And get busy doing everything that is in your power to do. All that has been entrusted to your care. Like the farmer, the, the farmer must till the soil, the farmer must sow the soil, the farmer must irrigate when possible. Well, so too you must till the soil of your own heart. You must sow the seed of the gospel daily. You must irrigate it with the water of God's Word. You must labor to do the same in the hearts of those who are around you, casting the gospel seed wherever you go, nurturing the spiritual plants that pop up around you. And then, having done all that you can do, and trust the results to the Lord as you wait for the precious fruit that only He can bring. Patiently waiting on the Lord requires the humility to accept that God is God, that we are not. James continues in verse 9 saying, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. That raises the question. So we think about the situation they were in, the plight they were facing, why were they grumbling against one another? That's how he puts it. Do not grumble against one another. It was the wicked wealthy who were oppressing and persecuting them. Why were those in the church grumbling against one another? We know the answer all too well, don't we? We know what it is to, to sinfully respond to our circumstances by taking it out on the members of our own household taking it out on even the members of our own church. All those with, with whom we routinely rub shoulders. All those within striking distance, right? 
Notice the the connection that, that James once again makes between sinful speech and us not being the judge of others. Recall what he wrote in chapter 4, verse 11. He said, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? So often, our, our, our grumbling against one another involves this sinful judging that he's been talking about. Whether it be the, the hypocritical judging that Jesus addressed in Matthew chapter 7. It's holier-than-thou attitude, as though we are without sin, this hypocritical judging, or or the legalistic judging addressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 14, legalistic judging, adding law where there is no law, or the presumptuous judging addressed in 1 Corinthians 4, and here in James, presuming to know someone's motives. Judge not. Judge not hypocritically or legalistically or presumptuously so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Our judgmental grumbling against one another, it's like a toddler scolding their sibling for for not playing the way they want them to play in the playroom, not realizing that their father is standing at the doorway, observing it all. But in the case of our heavenly father looking on, there's even more to our grumbling than that. You see, giving expression to our anger over our circumstances by lashing out at those around us It's really just a a way to to not deal with the real object of our anger. Namely, the one who is Lord of our circumstances. Recall how the the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, after having been liberated from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, they began to grumble against Moses in the wilderness as they journeyed to the promised land. Recall how Moses had to tell them that the Lord had not only heard their grumbling, but the Lord had rightly understood their grumbling, not to be against Moses, but to be against him. As Moses said, for what are we, he and his brother, that you grumble against us? And grumbling grumbling against God, it's no small matter. Of the hundreds of thousands of men and women who were liberated from Egypt, two Two of those hundreds of thousands who were over the age of 20 stepped foot in Canaan. Why? Because all the rest of them died over the course of 40 years in the wilderness. Why? Because God was punishing them. Punishing them for what? For grumbling. It began just three days into their journey. They began to grumble about their thirst in Exodus 15, just three days in. Then about a month into their journey... They began to grumble about their hunger in chapter 16. This this continued into chapter 17 from which we read earlier, where God explained that their grumbling was really a form of testing and thus judging Him. What they were saying without actually saying it was, is the Lord among us or not? Exodus 17, 7. Is the Lord among us or not? Judging. His provision for them, judging His wisdom, judging His goodness toward them. And so God judged them for them judging Him. Psalm 95, it recounts what happened on that day at Rephidim in Exodus 17. And it reveals that it was then and there, in that moment, as they judged Him by saying, is the Lord among us or not, that, quote, God swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest because of their grumbling. 
Think of your, your grumbling as, as the knocking of a car engine that you just can't ignore. The source of the problem could be any number of things. You have to open the hood and, and start taking things apart to find the root cause. Well, Exodus 17.7 is God opening the hood of your heart and exposing the root cause of your grumbling. It's unbelief. It's unbelief that the Lord of your circumstances is present in your circumstances. Your grumbling is unbelief that He is at work in the very things about which you are grumbling. So we see that patiently waiting on the Lord requires the faith to believe that God is at work in our lives. Even when we can't see how. So each and every time that you feel this impulse to grumble, or hear the engine knocking. Recognize your impatience, not just with your circumstances, but recognize your impatience in that moment with the Lord of your circumstances. Recognize your unbelief that He is present with you, that He is at work among you and through you in those circumstances. And remind yourself of all that you do know to be true. As the Israelites should have done there at Rephidim, they should have reminded themselves of God's proven love and wisdom and power in liberating them from slavery in Egypt. They should have reminded themselves of what they knew to be true and reassured their hearts amidst the difficulty they faced. Well, in verse 10, James then sets up a contrast between the, the faithless words of the grumbler, the faithless words of the grumbler, and the faithful words of the prophets. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. That phrase, who spoke in the name of the Lord, is, it's not just a throwaway phrase. It's drawing attention to the words spoken. Words spoken with the intention of building up rather than tearing down. Words spoken with the intention to help rather than to harm, like grumbling. And the prophets, they, they persisted in their use of their tongues even in the face of great persecution at the hands of those to whom they were sent to minister. So many of the prophets of the Old Testament suffered for their ministry. We don't know for certain, but, but ancient records indicate that Jeremiah was stoned to death after 40 years of hard, seemingly fruitless ministry. And that Isaiah was sawn in two by the people of Israel after 60 years of hard, seemingly fruitless ministry. Forty years, sixty years to end in being stoned to death or sawn in two. As Jesus lamented in the final days before the Jews put Him to death, Matthew 23, 37, He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Consider the final words of Stephen before they stoned Him to death in the streets. In Jerusalem, Acts 7, 52, he said, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Like Jesus, Stephen and the other prophets before him are examples. They're examples of suffering and patience, enduring great hardship, and yet speaking God-glorifying truths, not grumbling words. Despite the hostility that they faced for doing so, Stephen and Isaiah and Jeremiah, they did what they were called to do. They spoke truth, even when it didn't appear to be accomplishing any good. So if we struggle to keep from grumbling, if that's you, if you recognize that in your life, that you struggle to keep from grumbling, 
we must ask, what was it that enabled these men, Stephen, Isaiah, Jeremiah, those that were drawn attention to, what was it that enabled them to patiently remain steadfast? Is your struggle with grumbling not evidence that that you lack something that you need? Well, this takes us back to the beginning of James' letter. The seemingly impossible challenge in chapter 1 to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. But in that context, in verse 5 of chapter 1, James names what it is that we lack. Why is it that we grumble when we cannot, and cannot remain patient like Stephen and Isaiah and Jeremiah? What do we lack? Well, he says it in chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. See that we need wisdom to wait well, to wait patiently for the coming of the Lord. Specifically, we need the wisdom that is addressed in the two great books of contemplative wisdom, Job and Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was clearly referred to and clearly in James's mind when in chapter 4 he described us as vapors that appear for a little time and then vanish. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. And now here in chapter 5, James explicitly draws our attention to Job, the other great book of contemplative wisdom. Job, a faithful and upright man who lost everything his children, his possessions, his health. And how did he respond? Chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Chapter 2, verse 10. It's a truly astounding example of suffering and patience and steadfastness. Now, as Job's suffering persisted, and as it was made worse by the unhelpful counsel of his three friends, it can hardly be argued that Job did not begin to sin with his lips. However, he never cursed God, as his wife told him to. He never renounced his allegiance to God. He never doubted God's sovereign power over his circumstances. He never lashed out at others like we so often do. No, he directed his complaint directly to God, crying to God for deliverance. While Job never doubted that God was at work in his life, he did begin to doubt that God knew what he was doing, that God was wise. When we can't make sense of the suffering that that we experience, or that we see in the lives of others, we too are often tempted to doubt that God has a good purpose for allowing that suffering. And that temptation, the one that we see exhibited by Job, the one we see in our own lives, our own heart, this temptation is what the book of Job is written to combat. Listen again to verse 11 of our passage in James. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. Did Job see the purpose of the Lord for his suffering? Did he see the purpose of the Lord on why God allowed that? No. And that's the point. God never answered Job's question about why God was permitting such suffering to befall him. 
And just as God never answered the preacher in Ecclesiastes questions about what God was doing through his seemingly insignificant vapor-like existence. And yet, both Job and both the preacher in Ecclesiastes found wisdom. What did they find? They found the wisdom that God will give to those who ask for it. It's the wisdom to trust God even when we don't understand what He's doing. See, patiently waiting on the Lord requires the wisdom to trust that God knows what He's doing and that His purposes are good. When we don't have the answers, the wisdom that comes down from heaven, as James describes it, it enables us to trust that God does, that God does have the answers, even when He doesn't give them to us. It gives us the ability to trust that God does have a purpose in our trials and that He can be trusted. So James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That last part about having seen that the Lord is compassionate and and merciful, is that merely a reference to the the restoration of Job's health and the restoration of Job's possessions and, and a family at the end of the book? I don't think so. Where have we most clearly seen the Lord's compassion and mercy on display? When the the first readers of James read of this, having seen the Lord's compassion and mercy, where does their mind go? Not to the life of Job. It's to the life of, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's in the sure promise of His coming return. You see, the, the earthly, temporary restoration of Job's life was always meant to point forward to the, the heavenly, permanent restoration of all things in the new heaven and the new earth at the coming of the Lord, the return of Jesus. For God the Son, Jesus Christ, He entered into the brokenness of this world to live the life of perfect obedience and perfect steadfastness that you and I and Job and all others have failed to live in order to die the death that we deserve for our sins to rise in victory over sin and death, so that all who place their trust in Him for the forgiveness of their sins will likewise rise from the grave on the last last day when He comes to enter into His glorious presence forever. Beloved, see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful to save. Fix your gaze upon our risen Savior and see that He is worthy of your trust. For He's already proven His wisdom and His goodness and His power at the cross of Jesus Christ. You can trust Him in your trials. He knows what He is doing. What are you waiting for? Brothers and sisters, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Let that always be at the top of your list. And diligently cultivate the the humility and the faith and the trust required to wait for that day patiently by keeping that day ever in view. Let us pray. Father, as we consider our own struggle with grumbling, we recognize our need to grow. And so we bow before You now, asking for You to grant the humility to accept that You are God, that we are not. The faith to believe that You are at work in our lives. The wisdom to trust You know what You're doing. Lord, bless the preaching of your holy word. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.